Amen. Let's give it up for the worship team. I love worship. That's the point of eternity. If you're a watch checker, you ain't going to make it. I love, I love worship. You know, it's funny. I've been traveling full-time now for a little over 17 years, and I'm one of those guys that I, I have to be in the worship service. I can't sit in a green room. I can't. Like, I got to be in the presence worshiping with the community and with everybody. Just, I got nothing else. Like, it's so hard to bring a word from the Lord when you're not, like, in it, when you're not in his presence. And um, I hope I never become such a professional speaker that I miss that. Amen? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Um, what up, everybody? Y'all looking good this morning. Shoot, I'm about to send all my single friends to Anaheim Hills, California. <laughs> Going to play matchmaker. Um, my name is Luke Holter. For those of you that don't know me, you're lucky. Um, for the rest of you, <laughs> um, I'm from Houston, Texas, the birthplace of Third Coast Hip Hop and Original Barbecue. And um, <laughs> my, I married a beautiful Filipina woman named Grace, and uh, we have a daughter that uh, just turned seven. Uh, her name is Gemma Love. And um, they have loaned me out to y'all uh, this weekend and then Monday and Tuesday. I want to encourage y'all, come Monday and Tuesday. If you can get here, there's going to be a lot more time um, for teaching and prophetic ministry. And there'll be a lot more, you know, a lot of times when people hear that you're doing a ministry school, they think, okay, well, it's just going to be textbook stuff. And there is going to be that kind of stuff. We're going to train and equip you to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and what he sounds like. We're going to teach you the difference between the voice of the enemy, the voice of the Holy Spirit, and the voice of your own soul. There are differences in those things. We're going to talk about dream interpretation. We'll go over the 20 most common dreams that people have, numbers, symbols, shapes, meanings, all that kind of stuff. We're going to teach you a lot. But also, when you teach anything on God, regardless of the topic, his presence begins to rise in the teaching. And so it's not uncommon that he moves even in our teaching settings and words come out and people start getting downloads from heaven and all these amazing stuff happens. So come out, be here. Don't make this Southern boy be all alone up in this building Monday and Tuesday. We made it free so that you could come and everybody, nobody would miss out. We've got other people coming. So that's the other thing too. If you are gonna come, be on time because we got people coming from San Diego. We got people coming from all over. So get here on time. Please come. Amen? Love you. Uh, Pastor, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. This is not a, it's not a right. It's a privilege. And um, I, I received Christ officially. What I consider my conversion was when I was 25. I'm 42 now. I know. Shoot, I know. I get it. Looking good, y'all. Um, <laughs> and I received Christ when I was 25. Um, that's uh, when he found me. I was 25, and that's what Jesus does. He finds you. You didn't find him. It's cute that we think we stumbled on him, <laughs> uh, but he found you, and uh, when I was 25, I was dying of a drug overdose. I was getting prepped for heart surgery and uh, living with a lesbian and dating a stripper witch when Jesus found me. <laughs> I was a rascal. I was working for a drug dealer, and I was a drug addict, and um, I was touring in a punk band. We did Vans Warp Tour for seven years and, and toured around and played a bunch of punk festivals and all that kind of stuff. And that was my life. And then, and then Jesus found me and uh, radically changed everything. So every day that goes by, I have a ritual. I think rituals are important. 
And I have a ritual every day when I wake up, when I'm getting ready in the morning. Um, I look in the mirror and I thank God. I thank him that he picked me. I thank him that he stopped. I thank him for that he stopped and, and found me and he bowed low and grabbed me. And uh, I thank God for the people that are in my life that were there during the lows and the highs that were there to encourage me and speak into my life. And this really is not a job to me. Getting to be here and ministering to members of royalty is not a little thing. It's a big deal. And, and I'm very thankful. I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart how thankful I am that you would open up your pulpit. It means a great deal to me. Um, I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> I'm going to pray. <laughs> and then we're going to get it on like Donkey Kong. Amen? Okay. Um, close your eyes and act like you mean it. Because <laughs> he hears you better when your eyes are closed. Okay. Thank you, Jesus. God, I just thank you for your kindness, for your heart as a father for us. We thank you, Jesus, for caring so much about us that you died. You spread your arms out on a tree and showed us what romance looks like. And then you cared about us and you loved us so much that you got up again. You didn't just stay down, you got up again. We thank you for loving us enough to ascend to the right hand of the Father and send us the Holy Spirit so that we could have a true breakthrough in kingdom living. We thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for living in us. We just surrender any wrong ideas we have this morning. God, your word says that when we see you, we will see you with unveiled face, which means all our wrong theology about ourselves and you will melt like wax at your appearance. So, Father, I'm praying this morning for a down payment of that, that people in this room this morning would have any wrong theology about themselves or you, and that it would melt at your presence. In your name we pray, amen. I'm really bad at this next part, and I forget to do it all the time, um, and so my wife encourages me, which means she gets after me, uh, to do this. And so we have a resource table out in the lobby. I have a new book that came out on Charisma House called Filthy Fisherman, How God Uses Weakness for His Glory. Uh, this book has my testimony in it. It's got a bunch of teaching about how we process failure in the church. And uh, it's really a book on hope and uh, breaking shame-based Christianity off of people's lives. And so um, we had it, uh, we entered it in a competition. We broke a record at Barnes & Noble for the most books sold at a book signing, a regional book signing. And so, um, yeah, it's God, not me. <laughs> Believe me, I know it's not me. Um, but God's done a lot of really amazing stuff with this book. And so uh, I'm not saying it's like the key to your next level, um, but I'm saying it's probably gonna help you or somebody you care about. And so um, who would like one? Okay, they're for sale back at the table. Okay, you can go ahead. Pastor, I want to give this one to you. Gotcha. All y'all dedicated. I expect to see that now. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I know Christians love free stuff. I've been in ministry a while. Uh, 
you know, the, the first message was a different message I preached. I'm preaching a different message in the second service. So I encourage you, uh, did, did you guys record the first session? So get a hold of the media team here or whatever, or whoever you go through for that process and get a copy of that. Um, there are two things I felt the Holy Spirit really press on my heart to share about this morning. And the first one was about why we need to prophesy. I shared a bunch of crazy testimonies. But uh, the second one has to do with identity. Um, because if you don't operate out of the right identity, you'll never show up and prophesy. You won't, be, you won't become who God has called you to be. You will always be living in an alternate reality of who you were created to be. And uh, what happens if you don't function in a healthy identity, um, then you start outsourcing your needs. And so we need to be careful with this because any unmet need that's not met by Jesus, we outsource to the enemy. And so we, everybody wants to be perceived as attractive, so we outsource it to porn. Or like there's just, there's different places where we outsource our needs instead of the Father. And everything dismantles your identity. That's not Jesus. And so Jesus should be the gravitational center of your identity. And anybody that's in the body of Christ has to grab a hold of who they were called to be. Which means you have to kill some things. And so this morning, at this session, I'm not coming to you as a prophet. I'm coming to you as a pallbearer. And we're going to have a funeral this morning. And we're going to bury some things. And, and we're going to allow the Holy Spirit. Now listen, there may be times during this message where you think you're mad at me. But I promise you're not. <laughs> It's just the Holy Spirit might be touching a sore spot. And so my encouragement to you this morning is let him do the heart surgery. Let him get in there with his uh, precision <laughs> incision and let him remove those areas where we've allowed an infection to settle in because he's gonna heal some of that stuff this morning. Amen? Um, one of the number one crippling things that I see in Christianity is the wound of low self-esteem. Uh, low self-esteem is a direct assault against the cross. Low self-esteem devalues the work of Calvary. Low self-esteem, left long enough, produces an atheistic heart posture that says, it says you disagree with Calvary, you disagree with heaven, you disagree with God, God is fallible, and if he was wrong about you, then that means he ceases to be God, which then directly affects your belief system. When you believe a lie about yourself, ultimately you will believe a lie about God because you're an image bearer. You look like your father. That's why demons love to torment us. We are the closest that hell can come to harming God because we look like him. And something's happened in Christian culture where we stopped fighting like we need to. Because we feel inherently defective and we are painfully aware of our hiddenness and shortcomings. And I want to encourage you this morning to say, God loves you. Jesus is not in any way, shape, or form intimidated by you. God is not intimidated by your weakness. The Holy Spirit is, how many of you have ever heard the thing preached? Maybe you heard it at another church or on an 
you know, iTunes thing or whatever, a podcast, where they're so like, live your life as if the Holy Spirit is a dove on your shoulder so that you do not scare him away. You must make choices to not offend him. He's not a nervous bird, okay? The Holy Spirit is not looking at your weakness and going, I can't help that. I'm out of here. Like, this, this person's too dirty. Like, he, he has a history of saving savages. And, and God, the problem is, is, is we become painfully aware of our weakness, painfully aware of our issues, our insufficiencies, and then we start to agree with hell about ourselves instead of agree with heaven. We have to stop agreeing with hell. The Lord wants to smash shame-based Christianity because it's crippling the church. There's no, there's no life in it. And, and it sounds really spiritual. Shame-based Christianity, when you're in it, you feel like you're being spiritual. You're not. I was reading the Bible. I was reading the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. How many of you know that story? Zacchaeus was a wee little tax collector. He was an Irish Jew on the countryside. He wasn't. Don't Facebook that. That's not true. Um, but Zacchaeus, you know, he was a tax collector, a trader of his own people, considered the worst. Jesus sees him in a tree, calls him by name, doesn't know who he is, and says, Zacchaeus, come out of that tree. I'm going to eat dinner at your house tonight. Invites himself over. And that one act of kindness from Jesus motivates Zacchaeus to change everything. And so I'm reading it, and I'm like, Lord, how am I like Zacchaeus? That you found me, you called my name, and you called me out of that tree. You picked me. And the Holy Spirit goes, stop. And I was like, what? He's like, stop praying that way. And I was like, why? Thankfulness is good. He's like, you're not being thankful. The Holy Spirit asked me this question. When are you going to stop relating to the sinner in the story and start relating to how Jesus responded to a sinner? If you can never relate to Jesus, you'll never be Jesus to a sinner. If all you do is identify with the least, the worst, the outcast, I'm not talking in a healthy way of like, yeah, we're the outcast, the least of these. Yeah, I get that. But if you don't start functioning out of a healthy perspective in a post-Calvary Christianity where we're actually on the other side with him celebrating, agreeing with heaven that we were worth the purchase, We won't lead people to Christ. If you don't value yourself, you're not going to value the lost. Ultimately, I mean, people aren't motivated. And people disqualify themselves all the time because they have issues. And I want to encourage you, your issues, he's not looking at you going like, you know, it says in the word that God poured 100% of his wrath out on the body of Jesus. 100%. He didn't save 5% for you. 100% of the wrath was poured out. Which means when you fail... God, Jesus, and the Trinity in heaven are not up there going, huh? God's not like, Jesus, come here. Did you see what Carol did? I was not ready for Carol to do that. I did, that, is a, that is a shocker. Like, that just got right by me. Like, I did not know Carol was going to sin like that. I thought I took all the wrath on you. I need a little bit more blood to cover what Carol did. He's not intimidated by you. But the problem is we're like, well, just, you know, I got issues. And once I get those things straight and good and, and, and better, then, then maybe I can step into doing what God's called me to do. You won't. You'll stay in apathy. And apathy is the cradle that Satan uses to rock the church to sleep. 
people stay in that place of like, well, one day I'll get better. I was a drug addict for seven years. That was my mantra. That was my chant was like, I'll get better eventually. And it took a near-death experience and a drug overdose for God to invade. There was many opportunities I had before that, but I didn't value myself enough, and I lived in shame. I used to come to, into worship. I don't know if any of y'all can relate to this, but I used to come into worship, and you know the worship's going, the, the worship teams, we say down south, hucking and bucking. And we're like, oh, the service was hucking and bucking. That's what we say. <laughs> and it was new for me when I learned that, that phrase, because I thought he cussed, because I was like, I don't know what he said. But they get to hucking and bucking, and, and I came into worship, and all I did for the first five minutes of worship was think about all the ways I failed all week. It just all came to my remembrance. I'm up here worshiping. You did this. Okay, I should repent. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I already repented. All these things would come back to my mind that I already repented for, that I, that I was already like, Lord, forgive me for that. They all came back at worship. I'd be worshiping. My heart would be postured in worship. I'd be thinking about the ways I would fail, and the Holy Spirit rebuked me and said, stop. You're not even repenting. He said, you're posturing your heart in worship, and you're thinking and looking at the way you fail, so you're actually worshiping your own failure. The human nature is we worship what we fear, and we become what we worship. We empower what we worship. Some of you have the same broken behaviors because it's all you're looking at. Instead of looking at the one that can pull us out of it. And we have this, we've been damaged in the church by perfection Christianity. And somehow a religious spirit crept into culture and a lot of churches made peace with it. Where it was like, you failed, you're out. You failed, you're out. You don't measure up, you're out. Nope, you can't do it, you're out. And we feel defeated. And we feel like, I can't do it, God's, I can't go prophesy over people. I'm defective. One of Satan's greatest tricks is to convince you that you look like him and not your father. Do you know why Satan loves it when we give up? When we fall, we make a mistake, we fall, we fail. Satan wants to convince you you can't get up again because that's his fate. He fell from heaven and he's not allowed to get up again. And he wants to convince you that's your, that that's your future too. But God wants to get the church into a healthy place again in our identity where we understand that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That he made us perfect, lacking nothing. Not a hair is out of place on your head. And you have a position in the church. You have a role to play in prophecy, in reaching the lost, in evangelism. But you've got to get over yourself. You've got to get past your fear and insecurity and low self-esteem. The world will put all sorts of weird things on you. I was diagnosed learning disabled in the third grade, learning disabled in English and math, put on Redlin, and then put in special needs classes from third grade till 12th grade. Didn't go to normal classes, went to special needs classes. This was in the 80s and, and early 90s, and they didn't have the structure they have in school now. So they didn't know what to do, so they just drugged us up. And I was told I was defective. I was called names that I won't say from this pulpit by teachers. I was told by my school counselor, don't ever try to go to college. You'll waste your family's money. Don't go. They were like, just like, you know, aspire to just like work at a kitchen, which is not bad. Don't, don't misunderstand that statement. 
but I knew that that wasn't my destiny. And for years, I felt insufficient. And when I would get around God's presence, I would feel more insufficient. And it was a reminder of just how defective I really am. And if anybody knew the stuff that I was really struggling with, they probably wouldn't want me here. And if they feel that way, then God must feel that way. See, your greatest theology about God doesn't come out here on a Sunday morning. Your greatest theology about God comes out after you fail. Who is he to you when you fail? Is he a lazy dad that doesn't care what you do? Is he an overbearing taskmaster? Are you following the right Jesus? I'll tell you what, when I had my encounter with Jesus in the emergency room, he visited me in the emergency room. I had this encounter with him. You know what my first thought was when I saw him? My first thought was, what did I just spend seven years running from? Because I saw him, and it was the first time I ever felt loved. It was the first time I ever felt like I was enough for anybody. I realized I had been running from the wrong Jesus for seven years. I'd been running from this mean religious Jesus that wasn't real, that was constantly measuring my performance instead of just trying to love me. You're worth the cross. He said it. He said you're worth it. He made you worth it with his blood. He's so in love with you that God did something unprecedented. He became flesh. He put on garments of humility and allowed small earthly creatures to pin him to a tree. He didn't have to, but he saw so much value in who you are and who you would become. Don't let Satan determine your proximity to Jesus. You know what's interesting to me is whenever we get in trouble or we have issues, we blame Jesus right away. That seems weird to me. Somebody hurts us in church. By the way, if you're like, that's why I don't go to church, I got hurt. Grow up. If you've been going to church more than a month and you ain't got hurt, you're doing it wrong. Like, it happens. Nobody, like, the thing that drives me crazy, pastors, when people say this statement, I hear this sometimes where they're like, I'm not fed there. I'm not fed at that church. I hear that sometimes. I'm a pastor's kid. My parents never pushed religion on me as a kid. They didn't force me to get saved. I was part of the culture, but not part of the family. And people would say that about my dad. They would say, well, I'm not fed at this church. It's not his job to feed you. It's his job to lay out the food, and it's your job to starve or eat. How many times have you seen a shepherd in a field pulling grass out of the ground and shoving it in a sheep's mouth and, like, rubbing their mouth and their throat and their stomach? Most pastors spend their whole lives on the backside of the sheep. I'm not fed by that pastor. Well, he's been picking up what comes out of you, so you're eating something. <laughs> Thank you for those good amens. All hell is setting out against you to convince you that there is something inherently wrong with you because you will become inactive. Both God and Satan are fathers, and they're both trying to father you. Satan is the father of lies, and God is our father. Both are trying desperately to make you their children. It matters what you believe and who you agree with. 
agree with Jesus, agree with heaven that you have value. It's not pride. I'm not talking, you know when somebody's prideful. And you know when somebody is confident. We need to be confident in our Christianity so we can get work done. There's things that need to be done that your insecurities just, they get in the way. Oh, who am I that God would choose me? And he's like, I, I told you who you are. <laughs> I love you. I bought you. And I want you to reach people. But who am I? He's like, I just said. It drives me nuts when Christians are like, I can't hear God. You can't? It, it's funny that <laughs> God lives in us. You have the uncreated God of the universe that exists outside of time, literally intertwined with strands of your DNA. He, he became a part of you. He didn't move in you. He didn't rent space in you. He didn't fill you, and now he's in a void. He filled that void, filled it in, and became a part of your genetic makeup. And he can tell you something, and you're like, I just can't hear God. He's like, I'm right here. Like, I'm literally in you talking right now. And you're like, I, I don't hear you. It's not like how I thought. Could you send that guy to tell me? He's like, I'm right here. I know people that, people will ask me for a prophetic word, and I'm like, well, have you asked the Father yet? Well, but you're good at it. And I'm like, you think he's okay with you having a one-night stand with me when he wants to put a ranga on your finger? He's a jealous God. I try to tell people, I'm like, look, like, people are like, a word for you would mean so much more. I'm like, than him? He's the one. Like, and this is what I tell people. I say, look, if you want a word, there's an easy way to get a word. Go to the Father and ask him. My job as a prophet, yeah, I know that sounds weird to say that, but it's important to know what you are. There's a difference between knowing your calling and pimping it out. I know what I'm called to be. But as somebody that is a prophet, my job is to confirm what God's already told you. That's it. Which means if you're not talking to him, I got nothing to say to you. Love you. <laughs> We're in a battle for our identity. Who are we? And we spend our whole lives trying to figure it out, especially in this region where people are constantly reinventing themselves, trying to figure out who I am, who, not, not even who I am, but what pleases other people. There's a difference between figuring out who you are and figuring out what makes other people happy. And we look to the world for a model. And this is what blows my mind as a Christian. Why are we not looking to the original source of all forms of creativity? Like Christian music should be the best. Christian films should be the best because of the source of our revelation. But most often, churches miss the mark because they look to the world for a model. Where they're like, oh, if you like this secular band, let's make our band sound like that band. Look, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s and early 90s, and there was mag Christian magazines that were like, if you like Rage Against the Machine, then you'll love this band. And it was like, do we have to compare to the world? The world has a lid. We don't. We have no ceiling. We need to find our identity in him, but we often look to the world. And I get it. We all go through it. I went through it. Ninth grade, I was convinced I was going to be a cowboy. Garth Brooks came out and I bought his rope in the wind. I bought a big poster on the, I went out and bought cowboy boots, Levi jeans, a bolo tie. And I bought every Garth Brooks tape that I could find. And I was like, that's it. This is going to be my life. 
I'm going to be a cowboy. Went out and got, this is ninth grade, went out and got myself a country western girlfriend. We'd go ride horses together, and I was like, it's going to be my life. I'm going to be a cowboy. <laughs> and then 10th grade hit. And I was at my parents' house. I'm laying on the floor watching TV. This brand new TV show came on. This is a theme song for it. Some of you may know it. Some of you may not. But this brand, now I grew up in North Dakota, which is 98% Caucasian. That's not an exaggeration. The other percentage is Native American. And so we had a, a military base that was outside of town, not considered part of us. That's where all the ethnicity was, was the Air Force base. But we didn't have that in our town. And I, this TV show comes on on my parents' TV. And this is the theme song. In living color. And I'm like, what? It's an, uh, it's an urban sketch comedy show, which is how white people say black sketch comedy. We don't want to sound racist, so we say urban. They know they're black. They're aware. It's a Wayne's Brothers production, right? And so it's this uh, hip-hop culture, like Saturday Night Live. That's how Jim Carrey got his start was on there. Jennifer Lopez was a fly girl. She got her start on there. I was like, and all the colors were loud. They would wear like bright neon blue baggy pants and like Malcolm X hats. And like, oh, I'm like, this, the first group that was on there was a tribe called Quest, right? And, it, you know, like Buster Rhymes and Q-Tip. And they're like, what's the scenario? You know, and I'm like, this is amazing. And I was like, that's it. Like, this is my life now. So I got rid of all my country western clothes, and I went to the airbase to the commissary, and I went shopping. And I wore giant baggy pants, and like, I wore like the original gangster Looney Tunes shirts, you know? I bought a Malcolm, do you know how angry Malcolm X would be for me wearing a Malcolm X hat? I wore a Malcolm X hat. I was the blackest kid in my high school. And I was like, this is it, I'm gonna be a white rapper. Like, this is gonna be my life. I broke up with my country western girlfriend. I went out and bought a Wu-Tang necklace. And I started acting gangster. I went to my local Sam Goody. I bought some NWA, Public Enemy. I'm listening to hardcore gangster rap in North Dakota. <laughs> acting like I can relate to these guys from Compton. And I'm like, Dad, you don't get it. Dad, you don't get it. These streets are hard, Dad. <laughs> it was all a dream. Used to read Word Up magazine, right? I was like, Dad, you don't get it. <laughs> How many of y'all know it's hard to look gangster standing by a cow? Be like, <laughs> I lived in farmland. I started buying notebooks and filling out rhymes, and like I was the original Eminem, the original White Rabbit. I was like, this is it. This is going to be my life. I would wear big bib overalls. I would rock one half down. Sometimes I'd wear them backwards because I was crossed out. Y'all remember? Criss Cross will make you. Okay, we got some in here. We got some in here. All right, all right. I see you, boo. I see you. So I, I found myself a gangster girl, and I was like, this is my life. And I continued like that for a few years. My senior year, my brother-in-law, my sister got married. My brother-in-law was like, hey, um, I want to take you to this underground punk rock show. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, just, just come with me. He's like, because I don't like all this gangster stuff. Like, I'm already short. 
and I would wear baggy pants, and I looked like a gangster Oompa Loompa. Like, <laughs> it was not a good look. I looked like a hobbit from the streets. It was not a good look. And he's like, I'm going to take you to this underground punk rock show. So I get in the car with him. We drive down to the warehouse district in my hometown. I'm wearing giant baggy pants. I'm wearing a color me bad t-shirt and like my hat sideways. And we get to the warehouse district and we get to this big iron door and he opens this big iron door and there's these cement steps going down into darkness and there's just like a little light glow light. And I'm like, all I hear out of the darkness is, and I'm like, we found hell. <laughs> my dad was right. It's here. <laughs> and I walk into that basement, and all I see are uh, mohawks and piercings and tattoos and these punk bands. And like, I see this swirl of bodies, and I'm like, it spoke to something primitive in me, right? Me as this high school boy watching these guys. And I, I, I turned to my brother-in-law and I said, what is that? He's like, it's called a mosh pit. I was like, I want it. I want to be in it. I want to smash my body against that body. I have so much teenage angst in me. Like, I want, like let's do it. So I jump into the pit. 30 seconds later, out the other side of it, my pants around my ankles, my lip is busted, my Wu-Tang necklace is broke. And I was in love. I was like, I'm going back in. Like, and so then I kept all the hip-hop music but became a punk rocker. And so I started dyeing my hair. I had hair at one time. I have very curly hair, like literally grew an afro. I had to use Murray's pomade in my hair as a child. And so I would grow out this afro, and I would shave the sides, and I would have an actual afro mohawk, and I would bleach it once a week. That's why I'm bald, probably. I would bleach it once a week, and I would dye it with punky colors or manic panic, and I started gauging my ears out and got my labray pierced and my septum pierced, started wearing black eyeliner, black lipstick, black fingernail polish. Now, this was before the days of Hot Topic, so we actually had to, like, make our own studded belts. And, like, so I was just, like, this total gutter punk. And I'm like, Dad, I'm original. And he's like, you literally look like all your friends. Like, you all look the same. But I'm trying to figure out who I am. I, I didn't go to the, the church didn't tell me who I was. They were not invested. They were like, okay, you can come here. But there was no destiny attached to it. I didn't go to the Father to figure it out. I went to the world, and the world will lie to you. The world will give you the best version of yourself for hell which is worthless. <laughs> you want to be the best version of you in heaven, of who heaven's called you to be. We need to start looking to the Father. You know, I love the story of David. King David was awesome because I relate to him a lot. He was short. <laughs> and <laughs> David, um, some theologians say, was born out of wedlock because he was conceived in iniquity to a handmaiden. He was placed out in the field to watch the sheep. When Samuel came to Jesse, Jesse said that, you know, when Samuel saw all the brothers, this is what's funny, Samuel, the great prophet, saw all the brothers of David and thought each one was the next king because of the way they looked. They were handsome and tall and strong. And Samuel's only mold for greatness was Saul. So he thought the next great icon was going to look like Saul, not understanding that there was a David that would break the mold. 
of greatness and redefine it. And for decades, the church has tried to hold people to a previous model of greatness instead of allowing them to break the mold to set a new precedent of greatness. We look sometimes and we're like, I don't understand that. They said that to me, Generation X. They were like, we don't get these kids. Like, they're just going to work at circuses their whole lives. Like, but we were creative. We were thinkers. And those of us that made it through that are doing great things in the kingdom. Where you're allowed to break the mold, things grow because no revolution can grow in a comfort zone. We want a revolution, which means there's Davids that are going to break the mold. But I love David's story. Samuel comes there and he's like, do you have any more sons? That's 1 Samuel 16, 6, talks about, do you have any more sons? And Jesse, who was a religious icon in his day, said, I have this last one. He's the youngest, which in the Hebraic means the one worth the least out in the field. So David comes, red-haired and ruddy and freckled-faced, looking totally different than his brothers. And the Lord speaks to him. The Lord told Samuel, I don't look at the outward appearance. I look on the inside. And he saw that David was there. David, now, David was kept in the field. You know why he tended the sheep? He was put in harm's way on purpose because he was worth the least. Those who tended the sheep, that was not a safe job. They were put in harm's way. They had to handle wolves. They had to handle uh, bears, lions. There was all sorts of elements and all sorts of things that were a reminder that they were rejected. And in life, when you're on a search for your identity, you're going to get hurt. And in that process, you have a choice to stay hurt or let that hurt be a reminder that you were chosen. David could have looked at that bear and the lion and said, man, I'm out here because they don't see that I'm gifted. They don't see that I'm called. And so they stuck me out here and now I got to deal with this bear. I got to kill a lion now because my family doesn't see that I'm called. But David chose to see it differently. He chose to see it as a reminder. And then the day came where David came to bring food to his brothers where Goliath was mocking God. I love that story. David shows up to bring food to his brothers, and what happens? Saul's like, hey, um, anybody that kills this giant gets to marry one of my daughters. And David, being the straight Mac daddy that David was, was like, oh, there's a honey involved? Okay. <laughs> okay. You know what the major difference was, though, between David and the Israelite army? Because they've been in gridlock with this giant Philistine. You know what the major difference was? Uh, they worshiped the size of Goliath. And David refused to worship the size of Goliath. You empower what you worship. They would say, he's huge, he's giant, he's massive. He has a spear the size of a weaver's beam. And it would shake them in their identity. Are we really a chosen people? Are we really called? This giant Philistine is an obstacle. David shows up, hears him mocking God, and goes, who's this uncircumcised Philistine mocking my God. And he goes out there and Goliath goes, what am I, a, a dog that you would send a boy with a stick? That's Goliath's first mistake because the staff was a shepherd's rod, which has to do with identity because shepherds had a knife and they would carve into the shepherd's rod the testimonies that God had saved them from. Their shepherd's staff were storytelling staffs of the testimonies of what God had done. 
So David's looking at his staff going, I killed a bear. I killed a lion. If I'm who he says I am, then I've got just enough room on this stick for a giant. And, and this is what happens. David did what you need to do. He got a clue on who he was. Both heaven and hell know who you are. You're the only one confused. <laughs> David gets it. And, and Goliath goes, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to feed your, bodies to, your body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David gets angry and rises up and goes, no, 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 player. Let me tell you how this is going to go. I'm going to kill you and all the Philistines and feed your bodies to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then, Goliath, when I'm done, I'm going to cut your head off. David didn't even have a sword. He's looking at the enemy's weapon. Saying, oh, that was formed against me? Not going to prosper. He's looking at it going, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually turn your attack around on you and use it to be the thing that kills you. And now this is what's interesting. I never caught this in Scripture. It says this. After David trash talks him, it says, and then the giant arose. The entire time Goliath was mocking God and striking fear into the hearts of the Israelite army, he was seated. David made a giant stand up. Now, in Hebraic custom, when a priest sits down, when Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, it's a sign of authority, which means David uprooted the authority that giant had in the region by declaring who he was in God. Now, oftentimes, you make a giant stand up, and we try to recalibrate because we see how big he is. Maybe you gave in your finances, and then you got hit in your finances, and you're like, well, it didn't work, and God's like, no, you made a giant stand up. See, when the giant stood up, David didn't go, okay, how do I do this now? I need to figure out a different plan. He's a lot bigger than I thought, and we need other guys here. You know, There's no way around the giant. He's not just your obstacle, but if you don't kill that giant, he's going to be an obstacle to someone else. So it says David ran to meet him, and he killed him, and he chopped his head off and wore that thing around on his hip like a Louis Vuitton. Walked into town, I was like, what? Oh, this is just a giant Philistine's head, no big deal. Hi, name's David. Hi, nice to... And then David does something weird. He buries Goliath's head in a mountain. He goes and he buries it in a mountain. <laughs> David understood who he was. He refused to wear Saul's armor. If he wore Saul's armor and he defeated Goliath, Saul would have tried to kill David and then take credit for killing Goliath because it looked like it was Saul in the valley. And if he died, it would have given them a strategic move in battle because the enemy would have believed that the king was dead when he wasn't really dead. But David refused to put on anybody else's identity because he understood that God could not anoint the best version of him. God could only anoint the real David. And he, could only anoint the, he can't anoint the Bill Johnson in you. He can only anoint you. Not the best version of you on Instagram, but the real you. Now you fast forward Jesus has secured our identity in him. And he dies on a cross because he saw just how valuable you are. Why would you disagree with that? Why would you disagree with 
your value. Jesus spreads his arms out and gives up the ghost, and he dies. He's crucified in a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Do you know whose head is in that mountain that Jesus was crucified on top of? Goliath. Even in Jesus' death and resurrection, he was making it accessible for you to kill giants. He said, I still kill giants. It was representative of you stepping into the fullness of who you were called to be. If you don't believe in who he's called you to be, you will never show up. You'll never be present. You'll never break the mold. And you'll constantly be bitter looking at all these things that you saw as a valley of the shadow of death, not understanding that that was not the valley of the shadow of death. That was the valley of Achor that became a door of hope. David understood that Goliath was not a valley. He was a door. And there's obstacles in your way that are constantly mocking your identity and who you were called to be in Christ Jesus. And you need to lay a towel on the earth and get your sword out, and you need to let that thing bleed out now. Because where you're going, there is time accelerating right now. And God's looking at us right now saying, hey, I need people in the church to get it. I need you to get who you are. Because there's revival coming. Not awakening. Revival. Awakenings are pockets. We don't need just an awakening. We need a revival. And a revival looks like painfully confused people coming into a community that will help navigate their identity in Christ Jesus. And God loves the lost so much that he won't bring them here. Not unless you're ready. Not unless you are a place that's safe for them to fail and find out who they are. And God has us right now in this process as a community of believers but listen, you've got to value yourself. Stop getting in your own way. If I could have the worship team come up, please. Stop getting in your own way. Stop agreeing with hell about your life. Agree with heaven that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Not a day goes by that I don't connect with the value of operating out of who I was called to be. Did you know that you being yourself is an act of worship? You operating in your identity is a, is a form of worship. You're agreeing with heaven, which is what worship is. Agreeing with heaven. People need you to show up and be yourself. I married a smoking hot Filipina that is a brainiac. My wife works for NASA. She's got two degrees, one in mathematics, one in computer science. She develops software for satellites for NASA. She's brilliant. And when I met her, I was like, I'm a nerd that loves comic books, and I still collect action figures. And my favorite movie is The Last Starfighter. Um, and I'm a nerd about stuff. Um, do I have to give any of that up? And she's like, no. I want you to be you. I sat down with her three weeks into dating. And I was not confident about who I, who I was called to be. She's this beautiful, intelligent woman. We were opposites. She was faithful her whole life. Waited for the Lord. Waited for marriage. Three weeks into dating, the Holy Spirit said, you have to tell her every secret everything you'd never share from a pulpit. I didn't want to because I had worked hard for three weeks presenting the best form of myself. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't planning on showing her the weird side for like another six months. <laughs> and he said, tell her everything. And I was like, she'll run. I don't want to tell her. He said, tell her. So for like 40 minutes, I told her every awful, horrible, nasty thing I had ever done. 
and she cried for 20 minutes straight afterwards. Didn't say a word. I was like, say something. Say it's too much. I'll get it. Like, stand up and give me the Christian girl hug. (laughs) Call me friend a bunch. I'll get it. And she looks up at me with these big brown eyes and tears rolling down her face. She said, I'm the luckiest girl in the whole world. And I love who you are. I was enough for somebody else. If you operate out of your identity in Christ Jesus, you will become all things to all people. To the poor, you'll be poor, not because you become poor, but because you're so secure in your identity that you can be there fully and relate fully. That's what that has to do with. It means you are so secured in your identity in Jesus that you can meet needs because you're functioning out of who you were called to be. I want y'all to close your eyes. You have an option today to agree that God enjoys you. The Holy Spirit knit you together in your mother's womb. That's Psalm 139. And he did it with great creative power, love, and passion. And God, even in the Old Testament in Genesis, he said, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. And then he did something even more radical. He said, let us make man in our image. And God bowed low, put his fingers in the dirt, in the muck, in the mire, in the filth, in the dust, and formed us. And then God did even more. He bowed lower and touched his lips to the filth of the earth and breathed the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God into Adam. So my question to you this morning, every head bowed and eye closed is if he's still the same God in Genesis why do you not think today when you find yourself in the muck, in the mire in the filth, in the dirt why don't you think he's still the same God that will bow low and kiss you he still sees that you're valuable it made his heart happy to make you he did not make you and become disappointed, he made you and he was filled with delight He will not turn his back on you. He will never forsake you. Even if you make your bed in hell, he is there with you. With every head bowed and eye closed, if you're in here this morning and you say, you know what, Luke, I do have trouble believing that I'm enjoyed by God. This is not a sin issue, so don't get prideful or embarrassed. If you're in here this morning and you struggle with the idea that God actually enjoys you, right where you're seated, I want you to lift your hand to the Lord. Yeah, thank you, Holy Spirit. Yeah. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Hands going up all over. You can all put your hands down. I want to lead you guys in a prayer because the idea of not being enough for God is an agreement you made. Whether you understand it or not, it's an agreement you made with your thought life and your actions. And God, as powerful as he is, has chosen not to violate your free will, which means he can't pull you out of it without you breaking your agreement with it. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer to break your agreement. And so you're going to have to repeat after me for all the hands. Let's just all do it together because there's a ton of hands that went up. But we're going to pray this all together with every head bowed and eye closed with as much sincerity as you can muster. And just repeat after me. Jesus, I break my agreement with a lie 
that I am not enjoyed by you. And I make a new agreement in the name of Jesus that you enjoy me, that I am enough for you, that I fill your heart with delight. Jesus, use me. Heal my wrong ideas. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I have one thing. Just one thing. There's a guy over here. Uh, I met him a little bit earlier. He's wearing a half black, half white shirt. I need you to come over here uh, at the front. I want to pray for you. Just come stand right here. I'm going to come down there. Come over, come over this way. Well, he knows what he's doing. Face me. Face me. Everyone, just extend your hands. And what's your first name? Tyson. Um, Tyson, um, I was just looking around the room, and the Holy Spirit, the way he speaks to me is just through pictures and stories in my brain. Um, it's not often that it's like, Luke, this is it with words. It's often impressions. And um, I saw this picture of you. It was very interesting. Uh, but I felt like what the Lord was saying through this imagery was that there's not going to be a man on earth that's going to be able to stake a claim to your success. The Lord said, I saw, I saw you surrounded by brothers. They weren't fathers. They were brothers. Brothers compete and fathers celebrate. And I felt so strongly like the Lord said, I'm about to do something very powerful in you. No man's going to be able to say, I made it. The Lord says, it's going to be me. It's my credit. The Lord said, it's going to be 100%. He's where he is because of me as a father to him. And I saw you as, I saw this banner over your head that said Joseph. And um, Joseph was sold off by his brothers. And I saw a journey for you where even those that were meant to walk with you did not. And they walked away from you. And you were sold off relationally they couldn't go with you because of the calling of greatness on your life. And the Lord said, I felt like he was saying, you cannot repent for the calling of greatness on your life. And then the next picture that I saw in my mind was I saw you walking around a crowd of people. And um, I've seen this before. Sometimes the Lord uses the same imagery so I know what he's saying. And I saw you walking around with a birthday present. And you're walking around to all these groups of people with this birthday present. And I felt like what the Lord was saying through that was like, wherever you go, you don't need to bring anything else. You are enough for people just as you are. You don't ever need to sweeten the deal because you are enough. You are the gift. And people are better for knowing you. And you're a good son with, with such good things ahead of you. But I felt like even some broken relationships from the past, people that were supposed to go with you that didn't, that they're going to come back just like Joseph's brothers did. And they're going to need a drink and you'll not deny them. You'll give it to them. There's going to be a lot of healing in the future for people that were supposed to be on your side that weren't. And so does that make sense? Awesome. I'm going to pray for you. Just extend your hands. Just agree with me. So, Father, I thank you for my brother. Lord, I thank you for the next season of his life. God, I thank you for an opportunity. God, I thank you that um, as you had him on this slow burn, God, uh, each opportunity that's come, he's had a choice, Lord, um, to go bitter or to go better. And he chose to go better. Lord, and I just thank you that he is like Joseph, that where he goes, he will be promoted. 
Lord, and I thank you for um, the journey that you have him on, that he's learning to take the blows and to move forward. God, I thank you that as a son, you're going to show him a new level of sonship this year, even going into 2020, Father. There's going to be a new level of sonship for him. God, where you're going to give amazing breakthrough and doors that could not open before, Lord, you're going to put keys in his hands. So, Lord, we thank you that doors will open and the people will listen. Those that wouldn't listen before will listen. So, Lord, I thank you for all the opportunity that comes with it. I thank you as you've refined him, God, and so he can contain his promotion. Lord, I pray that he will walk out the fullness of his calling. In your name we pray. Well, amen. Come tomorrow. Come Tuesday. If you need a word, come tonight. If you need a word Monday or Tuesday, show up. Come to the class. Put in some work. Learn to hear the Holy Spirit. And let's see what happens. Let's make the next Monday and Tuesday life-changing for you. I've seen the Lord. I've been teaching this class for over 12 years now. Traveling 17, teaching for 12. I guarantee you, we have never seen people take this class and walk away disappointed. Literally, everyone has left and been like, wow, I'm empowered, I'm moved, I'm touched, I've grown. Come and be a part of what we're doing. I love you, Pastor. This is your pulpit, Bishop. <laughs>